Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 18, Taylor Steele. Taylor Steele is a hardcore legend from Richmond's musical past, um, fronted uh, Four Walls Falling, and before that, Pledge of Allegiance, uh, bands that you probably haven't heard from or heard about in a long time. I happened to walk up on Taylor at uh, Gallery 5 when Keepone was playing. It was a night of, uh, of Richmond history uh, over there. And I had just, somebody, when I was interviewing Cam Denunzio, he had just mentioned a stint with Four Walls Falling. And then I walk up there and there's Kenny Wagner who played drums in the band. And then right next to him's Taylor, who I'd never met before. But we have a lot of, uh, we know a lot of people in common. It was great talking to him. I enjoyed it. I, a little bit of a history lesson, and we go on to solve all the problems of Richmond's municipal retardation. Or at least just be a couple of middle-aged dudes talking shit about it. Um, which I don't really... I mean, I, I feel very positive about this kind of thing these days. I've had a lot of conversations with people. I mean, I am not... I'm very pro stuff whatever i'm pro in general i'm not anti i there's plenty of things to be anti about these days but i don't want to put my energy into those things i want to put my energy into the things that i'm into i'm backing i'm pro this past weekend i went and saw a couple of shows um well this wasn't a whole weekend on saturday night i went to see uh um Damn, Horsehead and Gold Rush, that Band Wars thing with, that Matt Connor also played with the Camel. It's a good time. I I haven't seen Gold Rush before. I really enjoyed that, and I know the Horsehead guys from Drag Strip Syndicate, but I think I managed to miss seeing that band live the whole time they've existed, and really enjoyed it. Two totally different moods that night went well together for me enjoyed it. I'm going to be getting Prabir from Gold Rush and uh, uh, either, well, both John and Kevin independently I want to talk to on this podcast. I got, Kevin's seems to be probably going to happen sooner. He's easier to nail down. This is also a, um, a week of music. Um, I got, like I said, I got Taylor Steele. I recorded this podcast a little while ago. Um, a couple, man, two, three weeks ago. Just gotten around to being able to post it. I've had a schedule I've been working on. Um, I also have James Menifee from Long Arms coming up this week. We had a really great chat last weekend and uh, should be looking out for that. Um, I don't have a whole lot of... It's funny, the James Menifee thing, when I was in his house waiting for him, he called. I was there with his girlfriend who had just let me in because he was running late and um, I sit on the couch talking to her and he called and talked to her and they talked for a little bit and then she hung up the phone and he kind of came busting in the door a few minutes later and he's like, why didn't you tell me Curtis was here? Because um, he was getting the vibe from her that somebody was in the house and he was weirding out about it and he invoked, and this is not funny, it's fucked up, but he invoked, he remembered the history of the thing that happened to the Harvey family as, um, you know, he was afraid that there was some intruder in the house and uh, of course there wasn't well there was just me I guess I'm an intruder of sorts but nothing to worry about let 
the intrude in your heads all the time. But um, it just so happens somebody handed me, I was at over at Rostov's actually talking to Scott Hudgens, who I also want to get on the podcast. He handed me this thing that Penn Rollins is doing at Balasso on September 5th, which is to benefit the Harvey Foundation. It's a square deal and a square meal. They're selling all of these 12-inch prints of that, I don't know, photographers and artists have gotten together. Well, I'll just read the thing. It says, this is one of the hundreds of prints that will be available at the first Square Deal Crate Show. The show is a collection of images gathered from many local point-and-shoot enthusiasts. All in one place, for one night, for you to check out, or maybe even buy a few, and it's a great deal for a great cause. Check it out. So the square deal is you're buying these 12-inch prints or 7-inch prints based on, you know, the size of uh, long-playing vinyl or 7-inch vinyl or 45. So these are like the size of the cover of a long-playing record or 7-inch. And then for 5 bucks you can get a buffet-style meal, and they do make the caveat that this is while supplies last. You're not going to be serving food all night for 5 bucks. You get one buffet out. You better be there. You snooze, you lose. And uh, the cause, the $1 of each of these prints and the meals goes to the Harvey Memorial Fund, the Harvey family, who were the victims of a home invasion about six or seven years ago. can't remember exactly. It was in the mid-2000s. Very tragic and sad thing, but um, obviously there's a memorial fund, something, uh, putting musical instruments in the hands of Richmond Elementary School students. Uh, that is what it, the Harvey Memorial Fund benefits. It's a beautiful thing went to those schools we didn't have much in the way of instruments back then so that's going on um and let's go ahead and roll on into taylor Steele. taylor thanks for coming by here uh, oh yeah we i don't i know you know i wasn't a uh cool enough kid in the 80s to know <laughs> about four walls falling in fact the first time i ever heard of them, what were you doing in the 80s I was uh, listening to hair metal, mostly, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I was at the uh, Coliseum checking out Rat, and uh, I also was, I guess, listening to a little like Beastie Boys and oh, yeah. that sort of thing. But yeah. I, had, and I had missed, I don't really, I, I had friends that were listening to the Ramones and uh, Bad Brains, but like I, as far as local stuff, I wasn't aware of it until I was like in college and, right, right. and later. Right. And Kenny Wagner was the first person I met, I think, was in oh really band. yeah oh cool mm-hmm. yeah he was in, in in a band with me actually yeah and so y- you were in four walls falling you were the singer right yes yes yeah and uh were you 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 were in other other bands before that or yeah uh first i played bass briefly in like early 83 probably a couple practices that was it with a band called dregs of humanity uh then i played bass in a band called yfa we probably played about 10, 12 shows, I guess. And then for about two and a half years, I sang for a band called Pledge Allegiance. And then uh, after that, it was yes. Four Walls Falling. Tell me a little bit. I mean, maybe some of this stuff, I guess, is things that you can dig through the internet mm-hmm. for, but I'd like to hear it in your own words because people tend to fan worship, you know, movements <laughs> and get real uh, nostalgic about time periods. And right, right. With, with, you know, first of all, both of those bands considered hardcore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hardcore, mm-hmm. hardcore punk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what does hardcore mean to you exactly? How would you define that now as a, uh, what, I guess you're a 40-year-old mm-hmm. guy? Well, I mean, <laughs> I got into it, I guess, 81 or 82, went to my mm-hmm. first show in 83. Uh, 
and to me it was like hardcore punk it was like punk but you know faster louder angrier whatever uh it's kind of like the evolution of punk into hardcore punk right you know and and kind of that next step and was this still like blues based rock and roll kind of stuff mm. like played really fast or like who yeah who, who I were would we say speeding so. up like were we speeding up like basically t- it was speeding up the sex pistols and yeah. the ramones and yeah. all that it was, it was speeding up all that it was like just you know kind of a I guess the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols obviously were English. Yeah. And you had that whole punk scene over there. The the punk scene in the late 70s here was kind of pretty much an urban thing. Right. New York City, L.A., that kind of thing. And I think, you know, once it reached the suburbs and you got the, the... all the kids in the suburbs who were just sick of living in the suburbs and... Right. Dealing with, you know... Because that's when the suburbs really started to expand and blow up. Uh, was in the 70s, you know, maybe the 60s, 70s. Right. Uh, that's probably... Did you uh, Did you grow up in the suburbs here? I did, I did. Yeah. yeah. Which Which ones? Um, I grew up over in an area called Spotswood Park. It's off of Forest Avenue. Uh-huh. And what was the high school that you were going to? Uh, well, I went to Stewart School. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Stewart School, S-T-E-W-A-R-D? That one, yes. Yeah. It was a lot smaller back then trying to think i knew i guess i knew people that went there mm-hmm. uh but was were you guys um i mean did you start your first band in high school or what was yeah how well, did I, this I, stuff I, reach you i guess like, uh, it reached me it was weird um i was i guess it was 1980 81 mm-hmm. i was in uh visiting my cousins down in south carolina and my uh my cousin who was my age mm-hmm. lived in downtown well basically right there at the at University of South Carolina. His dad was an English professor there. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a used record store that had all kinds of records. He would just go in there and buy records. So we came down there for spring break, and he says, oh, you got to hear this. This is the Sex Pistols. And I was like, oh, I saw them on TV once. They were really weird. <laughs> but, you know, at the time I was listening to everything from Judas Priest to, like, uh, I don't know, uh, Gary Newman or uh-huh. something like that. So I had these, you know, Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. You know, ACDC, just a, a range of things, uh, but, you know, not any type of music really clicked. And played the Sex Pistols, and I was like, wow, this is incredible. This mm-hmm. is like the coolest thing I've ever heard. And, um, you know, coming back to Richmond, I didn't know about Plan 9. I don't even know if Plan 9 was open in 1980. Think, yeah, that's a good question. And, if uh, it was, it was very small. Yeah, but we had Peaches. Yeah. And I'd go in there looking for the Sex Pistols record. Never saw it. And a friend of mine, and, and we got in back into skateboarding about that time, and he would get Thrasher magazine, which was a newspaper at the time. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And we'd see this band in their Black Flag. And, you know, yeah, not you know, oh, that, that looks like it might be like the Sex Pistols. Mm-hmm. Well, they when Black Flag Damage came out, uh, they had them at Peaches, and I bought one and took it home and was like, no, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And it's still one of the coolest things I've ever heard, if not the coolest thing I've ever heard. So uh, it's uh, that kind of just catapulted me right into it, you know, feet first mm-hmm. when, when I took that home record home and listened to it. And did you did you pick up a guitar or, or did you know you wanted to be the uh, front man? Or? I never really thought about being in a band uh, probably until... We I started going to shows and I went to shows. I didn't even know shows were going on in Richmond. Mm-hmm. I didn't know 
hardcore bands were playing in Richmond. I didn't know there were more than 10 or 15 hardcore bands. I, I just Like in didn't the world, know. right? In the world. <laughs> I had no idea this was something bigger than, than uh, you know, whatever I picked up at Peaches. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was skateboarding one time at the U of R Spillway, uh, let me see, a uh, couple of the guys from Graven Image and Honor Roll showed up to skate there, and they saw we had T-shirts with, like, circle jerks and black flag and whatever uh-huh. drawn on it because uh-huh. <laughs> we didn't have, you know we didn't know you could get teach we didn't know anything yeah and uh they were like they were really nice and said hey this is a tape uh they had the your skull is my bowl, bowl tape mm-hmm. honor roll graven image split and they gave us copies they said, hey, you ought to come to the void show and blah 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 and it's like void's playing here no way so i thought that was crazy i yeah. was like cool so we went to the void show it was a matinee and you know after going to a couple shows and watching some bands play, especially some opening bands, like we were like, man, we could do this. Why don't we just pick up some instruments and learn how to play them? And and we just kind of, I was like, well, I'll play bass, I guess. <laughs> you know, <I'm> like, <laughs> and I was never very good at bass. And then I got into singing because uh, YFA uh, kind of broke up. Well, sort of broke up. Basically, our guitarist uh, came back from college. So basically. Our guitarists and YFA had gone off to go to college. My brother started playing guitar in his place. And then... And what was your, what's your brother's name? My brother's name is Bo Steele. He right. was also in Pledge Allegiance and Four Walls Falling with mm-hmm. me. And so he, the, our, the guitarist only lasted a semester in college and came back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course. And then our singer got into the Grateful Dead and quit. So we are like, well, we want to keep playing, so... We've got two guitarists, a bass player, and a drummer. Who's going to start singing? Obviously not the drummer, because no one else can play drums. <laughs> and so everybody's like, well, you're the worst at your instrument. Why don't you try singing first? And if it sounds good, you'll just be the singer. And so I guess they liked the way I sounded, or maybe they just didn't really want to sing. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I became the singer, and we did Pledge Allegiance and kind of went from there. And at that time, what was... Like where were the clubs? Like where did you play shows? Like could you? Well, YFA's first show was, uh, you know, where Absolute Art is on Gray Street. Yeah, there used to be a bar in there, mm-hmm. and and so we played there with Death Piggy. Actually, open oh, for right Death on. Piggy. We had four songs. We played them all twice. <laughs> <laughs> so, and no one was the wiser. <laughs> no one was the wiser. We sounded so bad. We probably sounded better the second time we played than the first time. We got warmed up. We got warmed up. Yeah. So, uh, but we played there. That was our first show. We played a lot of shows that summer at um, at uh, Hard Times. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was over on Harrison and uh, yeah, where Carrie. Elephant mm-hmm. Tie is now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because uh, basically, anytime they needed a band to play, could you know to fill out a bill, they'd call us, and we were like dumb. Even if we played like two days before, yeah, we'll you, play again. You just made me remember yeah. Dennis's problem. Yes. That? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dennis's problem came out of uh, we're members of Pledge Allegiance. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So with George Safi, was he? he yeah, was, George Safi was the original drummer for YFA and Pledge Allegiance. Uh, I, I did not know this. Yes. Uh-huh. And I'm I'm a I'm a good friend of the Safi clan, and I Are did you? not know this. Oh, that's yeah, great. yeah. I that's went to high great. school with Jason. Jason, his George's first co- his cousin, cousin that yeah, plays yeah. guitar. Oh, that he was my hair model uh, metal buddy. Really? Like, yeah, because you know his dad. Uh, oh yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, yeah. His dad, uh, Ronnie, which Ronnie Sofie, which is uh, mm-hmm. George's uncle. He, you know, he was one of the owners of Bohannon's that used to be there on. Oh, Gray I didn't Street. know that. Yeah, yeah. I had no. I, I remember Bohannon's, but 
Yeah, and they had like three or four. You know, maybe had five locations around Richmond, and yeah, yeah, yeah. They turned me on to all kinds of stuff. Like it, at the point that I met them in high school, I went to Marymount. I don't know oh, if you remember right. that yeah, joint. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, at the time I met them, I I knew about only what was on the radio, <laughs> and and Ronnie got me into all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Jason got me into the metal. Like I heard Metallica and right. Slayer and shit the first time over there, and Ronnie got me into like, you know, old like off you know deep cut Kinks and uh, and then like yeah. glam rock, like you know. That oh, yeah. sort of thing. So you were in a band with George. That's awesome. Yeah, I was. Yeah, Crazy yeah. George was a drummer in uh, the original drummer for Pledge Allegiance. Um, after he left, Seth Harris, who went on to be an honor roll. Right, right. Played drums. Sean's brother. Yeah, Sean. Mm-hmm. And Sean was the last bass player in Pledge Allegiance. Ah. Yeah, so, and Tannen. Right, came in cloth. on second guitar for uh-huh. about the last year we were together too. So I gotta get I'm gonna get Tannen on this thing. Oh, that'll here be great. Pretty soon, but uh, yeah. Sean is too far away. Yeah, right yeah. I'm not doing phoners. Seattle. Well, maybe he'll come back to visit eventually. Yeah, he's yeah. already already hitting me up because he wants to be on it. Uh, awesome. From from there. That'll be a good interview. So, did you encounter much resistance in doing this back then? Because it, it seems to me this was the kind of the golden age where nobody gave a shit what was going on in the city. Like you could go down to uh, 17th Street mm-hmm. and play. There was a club down there. PB Kelly's. PB Kelly's. Pleasure right. Legions played there a lot. Yeah. yeah, and you could just do. The cops didn't care. It didn't seem anybody cared. Like what you know, what the hoodlums were up mm-hmm. to. Or was they a- did and they didn't. It was kind. Of, I don't really know how to explain it. Um, if someone complained, it's kind of. I think now when people complain to the police, they just complain if it's music being played. Right. Back then, it was like, you know, there wasn't anyone around to complain. But if anyone could hear what you were playing, and they weren't into, and they weren't like into hardcore punk, right. they were probably complaining about it. <laughs> that you know? area down there, though, where PB mm-hmm. Kelly's was, that there was nothing. There was nothing down, that, there, down there at all. There yeah. was nothing down there at all. The flood zone opened, I guess. 89, 80. No, wait, I, that, that's not true. Flood Zone was seven shows in 85 because I saw the Bad Brains there. So. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so uh, they, they and, and I saw the Meatmen there, too. So they were having shows. But, yeah, it wasn't anything like it is now. Right. It, you know, most of the places were boarded up. And in my memory was like if you were doing stuff on Gray Street, you were doing stuff in Shaco Bottom, Nobody cared because nobody wanted those areas anyway, as long as you didn't get too far out that of line. That was true. Right? That was true. As long as you didn't get too far out of line, no one really cared. And you didn't have some of the laws that you have now. Yeah. The curfews and that right. kind of thing. And uh, you kind of start when you wanted and kind of end when you wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, most shows would probably start around 10 or 11 after dinner. Yeah. Um, if places even sold, even had... Kids used to just hang out in that parking lot over there on Schaefer. Oh, yeah, the yeah. The pumpkin lot. The pumpkin there. lot. I used to hang out there. <laughs> yeah, and the Burger in King the 80s, over yeah. there, too. And the Burger King saw saw someone chase someone out of Lums with a gun one time. <laughs> <laughs> saw all kinds of crazy things at that Burger King, that's for sure. But uh, so where did, like, how far did you guys take the uh, the um, the two the bands, like Pledge Allegiance and uh, Four Walls Falling? Like, how, how, like that, I guess Pledge Allegiance gave way but without mm-hmm. actually touring or leaving town or yeah pledge allegiance that that was an interesting band we kind of um we never toured but we were kind of on the brink of doing a lot uh we were death records had contacted us Mm -hmm. uh they they put out coc uh um 
Animosity, DRI dealing with it, among other records. And they were kind of a big up-and-coming records. They were a subsidiary of Metal Blade Records at the uh-huh. time. And they had contacted us, and uh, we had, you know, sent them some stuff, and they were interested. And, uh, you know, we were playing, I guess we had become one of the bigger bands around Richmond towards Mm -hmm. the end there. A lot of the earlier bands, like like Graven Image and and, uh, White Cross and all those bands had pretty much broken up Mm -hmm. by then. And then Honor Roll had kind of gone in a little bit of different direction. Mm-hmm. And so there weren't really, I mean, there was us, there was Sorted Doctrine, maybe a couple other bands. But there wasn't really a lot of, of bands to pick from. So I guess we had become one of the bigger bands. And um, we, uh, we were kind of on the verge of something. But then um, ha- I guess Tannen and Seth and Sean, they were really in the metal at the time. Mm-hmm. And just wanted to kind of go off in that direction, and we kind of wanted to go in another direction. So the band ended up breaking up, and uh, you know we formed Four Walls Falling, kind of out of ashes. My brother and I out of the ashes that with Greta and uh, Dewey from Unseen Force, because mm-hmm. Unseen Force had it just broke broken up as well. Yeah. And were you guys still pretty much doing the straight hardcore thing? We hadn't. Yeah, I guess it had. Um, it was really weird. Pledge Allegiance kind of started off as as just kind of like a fast kind of regular old hardcore punk band. Then we got sort of a little melodic, like Marginal Man or something mm-hmm. like that, for a brief period of time. And then towards the end, started introducing metal. Kind of got into the New York hardcore things like Crumb Suckers and Agnostic mm-hmm. Front and that kind of thing. And that's when we broke up. And then when we started. Uh, four walls falling we decided we'd wanted to go more like towards the new york hardcore sound i guess but with like uh lyrics uh more political lyrics like crucifix or coc had you know mm-hmm. those kind of bands so so political was uh, uh, a big thing like were you you were writing uh politically conscious stuff were you writing all of the yeah, I wrote all the lyrics at first not really even though i wanted to cuz i didn't really know how mm-hmm. i and then I wrote, finally, after like five or six songs, just with lyrics I couldn't even stand that that, that were just, I don't even know what they were about. <laughs> I, I finally wrote a political song, a somewhat political song. I was like, wow, that kind of actually, the lyrics I like a lot better than anything I've ever written. And so it kind of went from there. Mm-hmm. So, And I was, you know, trying to write political songs before that, but just couldn't really get my thoughts together or anything uh-huh. and then this just really came together and it kind of mm-hmm. you know and i said okay i can do this and kind of went from there and did you have uh ambitions to you know make a bigger impact than just entertainment with that or yeah of course yeah. of course i mean you know you're that when you're that young you, you hope that your music you know if, if you have a message will will you know change the world change the world mm-hmm. um I don't know if we hoped it would, of course you hope it'll change the world, but I don't think we thought it would change the world or anything, but we were just hoping that maybe people at our shows would hear it and get involved in things and mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And, and it was a real information network, I guess. At that yeah, time. yeah, it was an information network. And, uh, you know, when we were doing it in the late 80s, there weren't many hardcore bands, you know, and probably we started doing that probably in 87, 88 uh, there weren't really any hardcore bands, especially the type of hardcore we were playing, that were doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it didn't really start till about 89 or 90 when that started to kind of catch on and come back into the hardcore scene. 
And where did you? How far did you take that? Like, uh, did this band toured like nationally? Right? Yeah, we like toured this? the U.S. We toured Europe twice. Um, we put out two LPs, three seven inches. Um, you know, we we uh, we started off in eighty seven, eighty eight, when there were really not very many hardcore bands left around Richmond. Mm-hmm. If if there were three or four, maybe. Including us, uh, there weren't many shows. There's maybe one a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot going on. And then in the early, what was no- kind of going on at that point where, that was starting to replace it? Or well, I think I don't think anything in particular was replacing. I think people were doing a lot of different things. But I also think that you know, early on when I got into hardcore here, you know, hardcore punk in Richmond, the the scene was made up of locals mm-hmm. and then kids who were coming to college here. Right, from like Northern Virginia and the yeah, beach. Yeah, Northern Virginia, Virginia Beach, Roanoke. Mm-hmm. In the late 80s, the amount, it, it, it almost turned to just almost all local. Mm-hmm. And the people that were still into it from other places who had come to school here had already been going to school here for three or four years. Yeah. So, you know, you didn't have the, 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 the influx of people you know, get into hardcore when they came here. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they they didn't come here already into it. Yeah. Like you did in the early 80s. Well, that changed again in the 90s where you started getting a lot of kids coming to school, the VCU, that were really into, you know. Already really punk. primed for it. And it got big and exploded again in Richmond in the early 90s. And, all, you know, all I was really aware of at that point was the artier, like, math rock kind of stuff. Yeah. Know? And and things, I don't know, that really didn't mm-hmm. fall in that category. I don't know where you put, like alternatives and king sour and those bands but like that was the stuff that i was more going to see Mm -hmm. like uh yeah and i think you could put alternatives and king sour in like a lot of different categories yeah you know they had the math rock thing but they kind of had like a psychedelic thing and they kind of had a he kind of had a punk thing kind of you know it's a mix of different things they kind of had a jazz thing yeah like a, a, a sort of a math bebop kind of a thing almost like just like improv and like weirding out and soloing and whatnot yeah and and you could really you could hear if if you wanted to hear punk in it you could hear punk in it if you wanted to hear psychedelic in it you could hear psychedelic if you want to hear garage you could hear garage they certainly looked like they would be punk musicians even though the sounds well they all came from the punk scene right so that it it, you know obviously that's going to be in the music to some extent did you go to vcu I, i did actually um I went to Sergeant Reynolds out of high school in 85 for a couple of years. But, yeah, I did end up going to VCU. You know, maybe you could shed some light on this for me. Because, you know, in, in talking about hardcore, you know, like mm-hmm. Fugazi comes up because obviously like Ian McKay goes mm-hmm. from doing uh, Minor Threat to Fugazi. Right. Fugazi takes it in a totally different direction. Right. And yet everybody who – it's they, they kind of – seemed to me and mm-hmm. i'm like this is an area where i'm really hazy as far as mm-hmm. my rock history goes seems to me that everybody who had been into hardcore just started going with them into that direction or a lot of people did getting mm-hmm. more uh complex with the instrumentation you know being more because that i mean fugazi was a lot more uh i don't know it wasn't just this straight ahead onslaught of yeah fast you know it was more grooving yeah right yeah it, I, I think some bands did, some bands didn't. I think alternatives, I'm pretty sure, were around before Fugazi was. Yeah. 
I'm almost well, sure, yeah. positive they were. So was always August and those bands. Although I, I wouldn't really compare the music of Fugazi with the. I mean, that alternatives they were two totally right. different. Right. I guess pieces. more what I'm saying is like, did mm-hmm. did hardcore not like so much? I mean, it, it seems like it kind of stopped being in vogue around that time. Did it? Mm-hmm. transform more like did those bands change into doing stuff yeah of- i think so if you listen to a lot of the bands in the early 90s you do hear a lot of that dc especially in richmond yeah um you you hear a lot of that dc sound mm-hmm. uh you know whether it's a veil or first five through um epicac bands like that um they all had elements of that fugazi that dc sound and uh, Inquisition, all of them. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, that was a natural... I, I really think, though, it, it's really... It's it's kind of odd because, you know, I was there, of course, when Fugazi started. Right. And... What did you think of them when that... When they first started, I didn't know what to think. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, Minor Threat had been my all-time favorite band. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was kind of like, I don't know what to think. But I, they they grew on me quickly. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, because when I first heard them, I was like, what's this? But, you know, you know, listen to it three or four times. You're like, okay, okay, this is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah. it is a totally, it's a totally yeah. different direction. But I guess what we're really coming up against mm-hmm. is my ignorance of, like, hardcore in general. Because like, yeah. now you mentioned all those bands. I remember them mm-hmm. being around. I just didn't go to those shows. Like, that wasn't my, my scene. Yeah. And I didn't, like, I really didn't appreciate it. Right, at the right. time, you know, like yeah. I appreciate it more in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I really wasn't like like p- punk is my favorite thing to talk about is like a, a kind of uh, an influence on a lot of thinking and a lot of culture like, yeah. since, you know, the 70s, 80s. But at the time, I, I didn't see that. Like, I just saw it as like, mm-hmm. I don't want to go to that show because people get get beat mm-hmm. up. You know, there's going to be violence. There's yeah. Gonna be, you know, whatever. I was, I guess I was a little bit of a pussy when it came to that. Mm-hmm. that and there really thing. wasn't a lot of violence. As long right. as you didn't get in the pit, you probably weren't going to. Right. You know, everyone was not pretty nice. So, um, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of those bands were influenced by Fugazi, but probably not as mo- much as they realized at the time. Mm-hmm. Because there were other bands that were following Fugazi from DC, especially, uh, that they were kind of more influenced by, but those bands were influenced a lot by Fugazi. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's always on a continuum. Yeah. Um, there are people that kept it real, like, stuck to right. the script pretty much, as you went. You mentioned a yeah. whole bunch of those bands. Like, I would think, like, Inquisition was pretty much doing the straight kind of hardcore. Yeah, right? they were. But they had elements of the the, the more, you know, I guess the, the DC, the um, melodic kind of thing, mm-hmm. too, in their music. Too, uh, especially more so at the end, um, and and avail too, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you know we had that from time to time in our song, but we were still you know heavy. Mm-hmm. We we were still trying to do more of a heavy, loud thing. I mean, growing up, my brother and I growing up again in the early '80s, that was always going to be in the back of our minds. Mm-hmm. That was going to be somewhere inside us, mm-hmm. and was never going to you know totally leave us. Right. You know, so, um, but I, I think one of the things, for instance, Fugazi, as great as their music was, I think the biggest impact for me that they had, as much as I love their music, is just what they they brought as far, they kind of brought together what punk rock, what hardcore means ethically. Uh-huh. And what is that? In, 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 in a business sense. Uh-huh. Just how doing would you everything, sum that up? Just doing everything fairly. Yeah. 
You know, not getting big heads about everything, just trying to be fair about everything mm-hmm. they did. The five trying to do show. everything the right way. Yeah, yeah, trying to do every trying to keep that that whole punk rock ethic and and getting as big as they did without you know throwing that to the side. Mm-hmm. And I know that influenced us. I mean, obviously, you listen to our music, you you'd probably be hard pressed to find a Fugazi influence in our music. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit here and there, but. Mostly you wouldn't hear it, but as far as how we operated as a unit outside of the music we were writing, we you know we really tried to to use them as an example of how to do things the right way. Yeah, and, you know? and did that? Um, how much longer did you play music after the like, early nineties? Like how much? Well, Four Walls Falling broke up in ninety five, mm-hmm. and um, we, uh, my brother and I. And some other people who had been in Four Walls Falling here and there, and just some friends of ours, too, uh, started a band called Joy Burner. And that was a band we were going to do, Try, I guess, to try to see if we could make it playing music. Mm-hmm. And um, I had fun hanging out with those guys and trying to write songs. I can't listen to it now. I like the music, <laughs> but I cannot stand my vocals in that band. Huh. I can't. I I feel like I was trying to do things that I just wasn't feeling. Mm-hmm. As far as my as vocally, mm-hmm. I like the music a lot, but vocally I was trying to do things that I just don't think worked with the music that well. Yeah, and you know, and, I was, and this was you guys' picture of what you thought would be a marketable. Band. Yeah, uh-huh. and that kind of that aspect of it wore me quickly, and by the time we broke up, I didn't start another band. I just didn't. The the whole idea of trying to make it playing music, mm-hmm. just I just turned me off completely. Yeah, because it just wasn't. It made it not fun. Right, made it a job. Yeah. Now getting together and practicing and hanging out and all that was fun. Yeah, but the other stuff associated with it was just not fun. And I had a lot more fun playing four wall shows. And you, yeah, you guys got it. You you had had experience with having to work with record labels and stuff yeah, like that. Of course. And, and and did you have basically a positive experience around that or yes and no i mean in hindsight i'd say yes but during at the time a lot of times no mm-hmm. um you know but i say in hindsight cuz you learn things yeah you you've got to look at the the glass is half full right right, right. <laughs> and so you know you you live and learn Right. And, uh, you know, even the people we've had, we had issues with and we were putting out records and four walls or whatever, you know, we're all friends with them now. And, you know, you, you, you know, everybody's kids back then. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, no one knows how to run a business. I mean, right. Which right. is actually, especially putting out a record is more so than even being in a band. Yeah. Well, in know? general, like bands just hand that, all of that stuff over to the record label because they just want to do the fun part, which is exactly you know, playing the music and, and <laughs> hey me included yeah. I, I didn't i didn't like the business ends of end of things at all i just wanted to tour and play and meet people and hang out yeah you know write songs that's really all i wanted to do what was the uh, do, you, do you have a highlight like kind of story of that of that whole arc of like playing shows and touring that uh really was just like when it all kind of came together for you or you're like just can't get any better than <laughs> i think touring europe Mm-hmm. Tour in Europe was so mind blowing. I mean, we, like I said, we we had the the 
kind of the Fugazi ethic about things, mm-hmm. the way we tried to do business. Mm-hmm. We were kind of like an un- unorganized Fugazi, mm-hmm. um, basically, <laughs> as far as the way we did business. Right. And so we went over to Europe, especially the second time, having gone the first time and kind of getting a little taste of it. The second time, a lot of the American hardcore bands were going there and touring with a with a uh, touring agency mm-hmm. that was basically someone that was based out of Europe. Like they would just kind of say, "Hey, book us a, a tour." And yeah, mm-hmm. and they would they would basically book you for three weeks or a month. You'd only play the places where you could make the most money, right? And you'd make some good money. You tour in a tour bus. It was all nice and. You'd go to maybe two or three countries. That's it. You'd play most of your shows in Germany, like like 80% of them, and then you'd get a whole bunch of money and go home. We didn't want to do that. Yeah. We wanted to go for two months. We wanted to play in as many countries as we possibly could. Uh, we wanted to play not just in the big clubs. We wanted to play squats. We wanted to play youth centers. We just wanted to – basically, we wanted to go on vacation for two months and yeah. play music. And, and beat the real people, too. And meet, like, beat people. We didn't care about dressing rooms or anything like right. that. I mean, it was great to have somewhere to sit down or to, to, to lie on a couch and sleep if you haven't slept much. or you mm-hmm. know. And they were going to give you food already. And so we already knew there were dressing rooms. And we just wanted to actually like see different things every day mm-hmm. and just have fun. Not to be like all segregated up on a tour bus. Like, yeah, pretty mm-hmm. much. I mean, tour bus might, might have been nice, but it wasn't like what we were traveling in was really bad anyway. Yeah. I mean, the vans were big. Um, you don't have to drive that far between shows on average in, in Europe like you do in the United States. So it wasn't really hard anyway. But um, so we did that for two months, and that was just so much fun. I mean, that was just insane. You know, the things we saw over there and how much fun we had, and it was just insane. And, you know, I, I don't think... Uh, well, and that seems yeah. to be that, that like... You know, my glance and understanding mm-hmm. of it, the, the way that they did squats over there and, and the sort of anarchical mm-hmm. uh, lifestyle, it seemed to be the model for, like, how people wanted to kind of bring that over here. And I never really yeah. s- saw that much of it in Richmond, but, like, I lived across the street from one in New York that was, like, you know, an aban- a building the city owned and people just moved in there and, like, right. fixed it up and they got it hooked up to the grid and, like, nobody fucked with them and they just... They just live there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Know. Well, it's it's easier in Europe to be quite fair. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, you've got uh, energy that's more socialized and things like that, mm-hmm. and you can hook it up. Like in East, when we went over there the first time in '93, I guess it was a couple years after the wall had come down, mm-hmm. and um, former East Germany, of course, had merged with West Germany. Yeah. And so in East Berlin all of those government buildings became abandoned. Right. And that's a lot of buildings Mm because the government owned a lot of things. So people were just moving in there, squatting, and the West Berlin government was like, well, what are we going to do with these buildings? Go ahead and do it. And and so, you know, it's a lot easier when you've got government allowing you to do that than having to hide it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure it's probably not as... uh, Easy to do that now as it was then, mm-hmm. but because of the 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 you know the the Eastern Bloc countries you know falling out of communism and in to and just having that whole just a lot of chaos as far as governing goes around there. Yeah, as they, where fully, which way are we going to go with everything? They've fully probably they've embraced the capitalism at this point. Now. Yeah, now it's still not. They still you know you can still 
which is kind of ironic when everyone talks about freedom, but you can still do a lot of things over there you can't do here. Yeah. You know, uh, you can still, you know, you can still go to the park and walk around naked if you want. Um, yeah, do whatever. It's kind of, you yeah. know, it's different. It's different. It's, 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 you know, it, it's a different kind of freedom. It's so, you know, and were it's your, apples and oranges. Were your politics, uh, when you were trying to write political stuff, mm-hmm. was that was it in line with that that kind of that that anarchical yeah, kind of thinking? Pretty like, much, mm-hmm. yeah, pretty much. I mean, we didn't pigeonhole ourselves as a as a an anarchist ban or socialist ban or communist ban or capitalist ban or anything like that. You know, we we just said, you know, this is what we think, and mm-hmm. you know, do with it what you will. And what did you want to see? What did you want to see change with that at that age? Like, you know, uh, did you want to, you know, just that sense of freedom? It isn't really about like being, were you like against stuff or were you just for like more individual freedom? Uh, Kind of both, a little bit of both. And it just depended on on what what you're you're talking about. Um, You know, if it, you know, I worked with Food Not Bombs a little bit, you know, that kind of thing. Just, you know, not, not stepping all over the poor you know mm-hmm. uh you know trying to to help the poor rate rise up and and uh you know that that kind of thing it, it was more that more against greed mm-hmm. uh that kind of stuff so. yeah and how did so bands you stopped doing bands late mm-hmm. 90s yeah or, yeah yeah uh-huh. what did you get into then just finishing school yeah uh i moved up to i finished i got my social work degree from VCU in 99 mm-hmm. and moved I just I'd lived in Richmond my whole life I wanted to move I had a girlfriend at the time that lived in Northern Virginia mm-hmm. uh, so I was like oh, maybe I'll just move up you know somewhere up to DC area I just want to move to a bigger city mm-hmm. um, so I moved up there lived up there for four years never did social work I was trying to find a job having a hard time finding a decent social work job up there believe it or not that wasn't like didn't take like an hour to get to yeah. somewhere I lived, that kind of thing. And you ended up getting a job as a personal trainer at a gym. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it was weird because I, I started working at the gym as a salesperson and hated it. And one of the trainers is like, why don't you become a personal trainer? The head of the personal trainers there. And I was like, I just don't feel like going to school and doing that, all that again. Cause you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is get certified. It's like really that's it he's like yeah and i'm like okay i can do that so i did that and became a personal trainer i love doing that but how long did you do that did that for about three years that seems like a, a kind of a dream job to me at this point but i have the same mm-hmm. you know aversion to it like you'd have to go to school for it or whatever but it seems kind of great you just get to hang out at the gym and well it was great because i was really into working out anyway i'd right. gotten really into working out in the probably in the early 90s and um I mean, I'd always been into running and working out, but I got really into, like, working out in the early 90s where it became, like, a consistent... Are we talking, like, bodybuilding? Like not bodybuilding, but lifting weights, getting stronger. Yeah, right. But not bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I wasn't trying to take steroids and look all ridiculous. Um, but um, just, you know, getting stronger, getting more fit, uh, mm-hmm. just feeling better. Yeah. Um, so I learned a lot just of, of my own research. So when I actually went to get certified wasn't really that hard um you know i studied and did well and you know passed and got my certification but i'd already been kind of in that whole mode anyway so 
And so you did that in Northern Virginia for about three years? And three years and reached a point where I was working for Bally Total Fitness. And I guess the last six months I was there, I was one of the top uh, trainers in all of uh, the D.C. metro area at Bally Total Fitness. They had like 15 locations. And um, I was, you know, training people 40 hours a week. And so I was basically was making about as much money as I possibly could being a personal trainer at Bally Total Fitness. I was getting married and all this stuff, and I was like, I got to do something else. If this is the most, I don't, if I've hit the ceiling. Yeah. So that's when I went and decided to go into real estate, and we decided to move back down here. To and how long have you been in real estate now? Uh, let me see, about 11 years. So you met, that's, you made it through the, uh, the crash? Yes, kind of had thing. one bad year, but yeah, made it through the crash. That's amazing. What do you like about selling real estate? You're your own boss, yeah. for one thing. Um, I've, I, I, you know, it's great to be able to own a home mm-hmm. and not have that money you you spend every month. Um, going going down a hole. It's giving you equity. Yeah. Yeah, it's giving you equity. It's your own house. You can yeah. do with it what you want. I like that idea. Um, and then I just are like, you in the city? With your house, or do yeah, you my house is in the city. Yeah, so how does how does this is the thing I always wonder about is like mm-hmm. the personal property taxes, like they're higher in the city. Yeah, yeah, you're paying for location. Yeah, well, you're paying for location no matter where you live. You 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 know people tend to want to move where they want to move, mm-hmm. depending on what's around. But if you them. move into some like like my dad bought a house in Churchill in like 1979. Yeah, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, 1970. Yeah, he. Yeah, right, right around mm-hmm. seventy, right around the time I was born. Right, and that was a shitty neighborhood then, yeah. and it cost that house cost something ridiculous. Like, right, right, you know. Uh, and over the years, he without him doing, you know, other fixing his house up, that neighborhood became more and more desirable. Right. So the fact that he's sitting on potential money means that he's got to pay so much more in taxes now. His like his yearly taxes are way more than like. Well, yeah, your assessment value goes up as the neighborhood gets better, so your yeah. taxes are going to be more. I mean, that's 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 how it's going to be, no matter where you live, as long if if the value, property values are going up. Yeah. Of course, the the initial uh, uh, you know rate is going to be higher in the city than it is in Henrico County, for instance. Right. But um, again, that's like the only yeah. tax base for the city of Richmond is yeah. is homeowners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would live in the fan if I could afford it. Yeah. Um, you know, afford the house that I'd want to afford, and and but you know, your price per square foot there is so high, you're not gonna, you know, get as much for your money. But um, so I live close enough where I could I can walk on a nice day to to uh, Carytown. Are you like, you know, the thing that we came up against like in Churchill mm-hmm. as the neighborhood changed and property became more valuable. Certain people start to be priced out of being able yeah. to stay there and uh-huh. stay in their homes or pay their rent or whatever. So then we get the cry of gentrification mm-hmm. around that. And like, so then the, the idea is like, Oh, well it's bad for people to move into a neighborhood and fix up houses and improve the neighborhood because that means mm-hmm. that people aren't going to be able to keep their homes. When surely there's some other solution, like, right? There <laughs> is to take it, like and what would that be like you know can they you know it's it's it would be complicated obviously but i I think getting it's something you want to see gradually happen Mm -hmm. 
You don't want to see it as a big explosion. Right. A bunch of people flipping houses. They're not even living in them. They're just going in there, buying them. Yeah, and the neighborhood going up so quickly. I mean, you'll also have what you have had happen in 2007, the crash. Yeah. If if things go up too quickly. But you're also going to have to, you know, you also have to realize you're part of a community. Right. And the people that are living in that neighborhood who don't have much money are part of that community. Yeah. Or part of your community. Mm-hmm. Um, I consider I live in the near West End in Richmond. I consider the whole city of Richmond to be my, you know, I'm part of the community of the whole city of Richmond. So I think it's important to to help bring all those people up. Yeah, you know, not just you don't want to lower the neighborhood to reach them. You want to raise them up. Exactly. You know? And it seems like, I mean, you know, the well-intentioned things mm-hmm. of, the, of that New York City did with, like, rent stabilization and rent control, right. it seems like there could be, and maybe there are, but I don't know about them, there are allowances made for people who were sort of grandfathered into the neighborhood that, like, just because this neighborhood is improving so mm-hmm. much, you could doesn't mean that they have to automatically suddenly be in this other property tax bracket. Right, right. right. Like, can't they... They just put a, you know, assess individually like, well, you know, this this guy's been here for 20 years. You know, he's only making this much a year. Mm-hmm. It's absurd for him suddenly to have to pay. Right. You know. Oh, I agree. I also think that you're working with two completely different cities. Yeah. And in, in Richmond, you're working with two completely different no, cities? No, comparing New York to Richmond. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. New York is kind of a get things done city. Right. They're get things done. Let's figure out how to get things done. Mm-hmm. Richmond is the opposite. <laughs> Richmond, let's Richmond's like, let's him and haw about getting things done. Yeah. Let's let's, you know, think of options and not follow through. Let's uh, argue about every single thing we can argue about mm-hmm. and never do anything. Uh, what do you that's, think that's about? It's history yeah. for one thing and. Even though we may not be in the same place in history that we were 40, 50 years ago, it's, it's going to have an effect. It's going to have an effect. And, and what Richmond has gone through, uh, you know, over its history, it, it, you just you can't escape it completely. But you have to kind of work towards it. And it's kind of ingrained. I mean, as someone told me who works, who's had to, who does a lot of events mm-hmm. in Richmond, and is always creating new events in Richmond. Going through the city of Richmond is like going through the mafia. <laughs> and it's because yeah. everyone involved, I'm not talking about, you know, the people trying to do the event. Right. But all the people involved on the city end, and I don't mean just, you know, the people working up at the desks. Right. That have the, you know, cubicle jobs and the, you know, those The various of officers and bureaucrats. The and, bureaucrats. Yeah. And especially people on city council and people like that are all like, what's in it for me personally? Yeah. What's in it for me personally? You know, I don't want to help because it's not in my, my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That's in this other council person's neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you going to do for me if I do this for you? That kind yeah. of thing, you know? And it's kind of, and I'm not going to say everyone's like that, but there's this, this air that it's like that. And it's just a lot of, you know, People scratching each other's back and not right. getting anything done the way it should be getting done. Yeah, that it's it's really it's it's that stereotype that New Orleans mm-hmm. has and that stereotype that Baltimore has and, and a lot of these inner city kind mm-hmm. of uh, city governments. And 
you know, it, it seems to me, and, and again, this is just me speculating. Like, I don't have facts to back this up, just like years of experience. It's a southern city thing. Yeah. And, like, is that because, you know, this, that, this is the old boy network has, you know, been around as the example of how to do business for so long mm-hmm. that when people get into the position that they were formerly kept out of, mm-hmm. you know, like the African-American people that are a lot of whom are constitute mm-hmm. the city government. They just like, well, we're going to do it just like those guys did it, yeah. you know, <laughs> or yeah. as we perceive those guys did it, yeah. you know, like yeah. it's just a bunch of like, you know, backroom deals. It's a bunch of like, who knows who, who goes, when it was in what fraternity. It's like, yeah, you know, it is. And, and it's sad because I think, you know, you've seen DC come a long way from where it was. 10, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. compared to where it was 10 to 15 years ago. You see New York. You see a lot of places, you know, on the upswing. Um, and then you see other places just like Detroit. Yeah. Like um, some of the southern <laughs> cities. Bankrupt. Just, yeah, <laughs> just going downhill. And and I just think, and everything's di- every city has its different issues of how they got that way. Mm-hmm. Um, with Detroit, it's you know the auto manufacturing left, right? Because that was really the reason that city was there. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So then you've got to think of ways to get it going again, and it's just again when you start running into people making backroom deals. Yeah. You know, looking out for themselves and not for the city. They're just as basically a whole. picking it's the bones really clean. It's really hard on, to get yeah. anywhere. Yeah. And and people, I've noticed here just, you know, reading. You know, just having a Facebook page, mm-hmm. just having a Facebook account. Whenever anyone comes up with any idea, it's just met with this almost, it's doomed to fail, it's doomed to fail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in Richmond. Like, no matter what idea anyone comes up with, it's doomed to fail. You know, the thing you that know? I, and like, maybe this, it seems like you can do more now like you used to be able to do in the the 80s that like people can sort of get some little thing going and as long as it doesn't make too much noise or bother mm-hmm. anybody nobody's gonna like it's like if you don't ask too much permission even if you just kind of like quietly go about your business you're until you can, someone complains about it right <laughs> uh, someone will always complain about it because if especially if it's working yeah somebody will complain because they don't want to see anything work but um you know, it's. I, I also think, as, as you know, as, as many problems as the city government has and all that, compared to 10, 15 years ago, it is a lot better. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think. I mean, that compared to ten or fifteen years ago, I mean, if you wanted to open a business, you know, buy a building that was falling into the ground and fix it up and open a business in it. I mean, it was could nearly, take years. Yeah. I know a guy tried. I was living on 25th Street up there near the yeah. East End Social Services Center. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy trying to open a place, where, which is now the now it's the Roosevelt. He yeah. was trying to get some joint open in there. And it took years and years for that. And it yeah, over, the Cuban re- restaurant. Yeah. Yeah, well, I over, talked to that guy for a while about it. Yeah. Over ridiculous crap. Like oh, yeah. Parking or. Parking. Like, yeah, how close the power uh pole is to the building that was a different location but like yeah somebody tried to open a place in the old uh like a block the old Shimborazo market right uh in the mid 2000s and were never able to do it like the stuff that they had bought to put in the store they ended up having to sell up at uh at um jumping jay's java hut or something because really? they, oh. 
Because the city wouldn't let them. Right. So it, it, that it's, it does yeah. seem like it must have improved if you can open Dutch and Company mm-hmm. on 27th and Marshall. Now, there's so much stuff springing up, you know, mm-hmm. proper pie. Like, there was nothing in Churchill like that. Mm-hmm. There was, And I always wanted to see that. I grew up in that neighborhood. I always wanted to see it kind of become a, a Brooklyn yeah. kind of a place where you could walk to this restaurant. You could walk to that market. Yeah, kind of like the com- fan is or... Right, right. Or Brooklyn or D.C. or... But, uh, yeah. yeah, like 20 years ago, they were dead set against mm-hmm. that for some reason. Like, there were some kind of neighborhood initiatives that had been put in place about keeping certain kinds of shit out of there. I don't... I don't. That was my impression, but I don't even know how factual we, that is. We also have weird... We have zoning laws in rich... In, well, in the United States. That's it. It's like zoned residential, zoned commercial, right? Yeah, right. and it's... If you go to Europe... And you see how a city is done in Europe. It's just so much smarter. Yeah. It's just all, it's all multi, it's mm-hmm. all multi-use. Yeah. You know, it's always here like, you've got to go through hell if you, you're zoned for residential and you want to put a commercial space in. Yeah. And you've got to, you know, oh my gosh, they're putting a restaurant in the neighborhood. What's that going to mean? People freak out. You know, right. and here's the thing. If you go to Europe, you go to South Korea, because my wife's from South Korea, so I've been there several times, you see what a city is supposed to look like mm-hmm. with people living in it, people shopping in it. Just, I mean, we went to, I've been to South Korea twice. Uh, her family, her parents live in a city that's 500,000 people. Mm-hmm. It's like the size of, I guess, D.C. proper, uh-huh. I would say, maybe a little smaller, but probably D.C. proper. And so it'd be like being in D.C. without the crime or anything like that. And if you went over to the Potomac River, you would be driving in the countryside. Wow. So they haven't spread out into all this space and, like, despoiled it. They've well, just kept it, like, efficiently. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they go, yeah, pretty much. I mean, they're also working with smaller spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have as much land to use there. And so they're more efficient yeah. with what they do. Here, we're not efficient. And those cities were built before the automobile was in widespread use. Yeah, so they're know. a lot easier to get around. Right. But not South Korea. Really? But South Korea is still built for being able to walk everywhere. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people use the bus, use the metros, use uh, taxis. I mean, the, here's a town of 500,000 people. And if you want to get somewhere you just flag down a taxi like Mm -hmm. you do in new york and you go somewhere yeah it's that easy um the but you know we're down on sunday night we had been hiking that day out in the which was only like half an hour outside of town Mm -hmm. in the mountains hiking in the mountains come back and we're eating dinner at nine o'clock on a sunday night downtown in like i guess uh the city center Mm-hmm. They have like a city center like you do in Europe with lots of restaurants and and stores and it's almost like a mall but it's mm-hmm. like a city, you mm-hmm. know. Like almost if downtown Gray Street had like restaurants and 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 clothing stores and everything all right. along it. Um like that. And we're eating at nine at night, ten at night, and people were shopping. All the restaurants and stores are open at nine at night on a Sunday. They're <laughs> open. People were out. There's so much good energy out there. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it, it makes you come back home and you're like, God, I wish it could be like that here. People just out and about doing things. And it just- is really ironic. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've been around long enough to like 
you know, we've had the, we've seen like the various kinds of American propaganda that we're being asked to agree with that yeah. people are free and that people can do all this, but we're we're not like we're, like we're self imposed kind of limitations, like yeah. not getting along with other people, not accepting other people, not yeah. enjoying diversity in yeah. our cities, enjoying each other. Like you know, not like not in, not embracing mm-hmm. that sense of community, not wanting mm-hmm. to be immersed in it. You yeah. know, people want to be separate in their cars, separate in their house. You know, this is all mine right here. Don't step on my lawn. Yeah. You know, like people want to wall themselves off from each other. Yeah. And um, I mean, we do have a high crime rate here, and that's something we have to deal with. But we right. don't really deal with it. We don't deal with it. We don't deal with what creates crime we deal with the after effects of it yeah and you know the difference like when i i I grew up in churchill and grew up in like inner city like Mm -hmm. you know seeing random crime happen right and when i went up to new york city i expected more of that to be happening to me and it was less yes and it like never happened to me like i mean i never i went all over the place you know the only crime ever Mm -hmm. happened was get ripped off in like a you know a a little hand-to-hand gone gone bad or something like that right and my theory then, as a 25-year-old guy, was that they got better shit to do. You know, they like, yeah. there's, there is a culture that they're enjoying. The people who are committing crimes in Richmond feel like that they're just sort of on some margin of society. Yeah. And, like, they don't, they're mm-hmm. not, what, what's the word I'm looking for? They're not um, enfranchised. They're disenfranchised. They're the, disenfranchised. Right, a lot of this crime is, is, is almost like uh, mm-hmm. just being, uh, like, bratty about it like yeah you yeah. Know, fuck you you know it's fuck you crime it's yeah, not, it is it's not even like it's like suburban crime almost but in the city yeah yeah it's vandalism mm-hmm. in the form of like uh, yeah. being st- either you have your ass kicked or getting stuck up or your car broken yeah. into just like i just pissed that you have this and you're not and it's like you're not acknowledging me right here in the yeah. middle of this town you know yeah and there needs to be more opportunity for people there has to be more opportunity um, and, and, and you kind of have to start when people are born. Yeah. You can't wait till they're like 32, 35. They already got bad habits and, and they bad already attitudes. Have bad ha- You've got to give them, you know, the schools have to improve in, you know, there, there needs to be a wedge somehow in there to, to, you know, I, I don't know how we do it. But people, you know, a lot of people grow up without any good example to mm-hmm. go by. At right, home. no role models. No role no, models no to home go training. to their home. They go home and their their parents don't understand mm-hmm. the importance of a good education. Yeah. And their parents didn't don't understand one, right. it. No one's ever in their family's ever been to college. And it just it's just perpetuating. It's yeah. just perpetuating itself. And somehow we have to get in there early. You know, preschool and help people develop good habits, you know, whether it's hygiene, whether it's studying, whether it's, you know, just being critical thinkers, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. You know, it's interesting, like, you know, my sense of like coming into the Mm -hmm. what was, I I guess, part of like where Mm -hmm. the hardcore scene was existing around Gray Street. Yeah. In the like the late 80s and the early 90s, I left, you know, the prep Mm -hmm. school scene having grown up in the city. My yeah. parents sent me out to the West End to go to public school. Right. I found that so oppressive and controlling, like just the culture out there, the way the I kids understand. were. I understand. Me too. You know too. what I'm saying? Me too. And then I get to, I mm-hmm. come down to um, 
the you know the VCU Gray Street area. It's not really VCU area at that mm-hmm. point. There's a couple of college buildings there, but it's really just this this weird kind of Haight Asbury area. Yeah. And I started going to shows down you should there. Have seen in the early '80s. <laughs> I know that there were mm-hmm. like you know biker bars and and uh, titty bars and just everything. That place was filled up with people. Yeah, Friday and Saturday nights, even during the weeknights. So. Like what I discovered in this area that mm-hmm. I thought should be scary was like this real comfortable sense of community, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And like, like I was saying, I was afraid to go to the hardcore shows, but I went to a lot of other shows. And now that I think about it, you know, I went to, um, I found myself in the pits at like you know punk rock shows, and there weren't they weren't violent really. Yeah, they were just people bouncing off of each other, enjoying yeah. like kind of just you know I don't know. To me, it was like getting over yourself, right? right? Like getting a little. You know, breaking down that idea that I got to be like this far away from you to be comfortable and shit. Like yeah. you can just collide against people, and it was like breaking down a lot of inhibitions for right. me. You know, because I had gotten super inhibited going to prep school. Yeah, out there, and like there's all of this kind of there's this weird sort of freedom going on, and mm-hmm. and like I think that was really, um, I you know I look I haven't thought about this in a long time but that 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 anarchical thing was really about that like getting people past the like social conventions that are separating them yeah you know it's not like not having like it society break down (laughs) completely exactly you know but say like we take a lot of shit for granted that's like really not it's not improving our lives Mm -hmm. and and we're not even exploring it we're not even like you know crossing this line to just say you know what's up to that guy over there across the street yeah you know well, there's mm-hmm. so many interesting people out there mm-hmm. and so many people to learn from, you know, that have so many different life experiences from so many different cultures. And to shield yourself from that is just, I mean, it's like living in a jail cell. Yeah. I mean, especially now in Richmond. I mean, Richmond is becoming an international city. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it like is. I mean, America. like I, I was just working at this restaurant depot over here. Yeah. There are just as many people coming in there that from you know the, of Asian background, from like Middle Eastern backgrounds yeah. to buy halal stuff, whatever. As I saw in St. Paul, Minnesota, and like I've seen other places. Like, yeah, you know they they recognize this is a perfectly good city. You know, like why not live here? Yeah, <laughs> and and it's just like it's great though. And mm-hmm. I've always said the best way for Richmond to get over this stuff besides all the white people and black people having sex with each other and, right. <laughs> and having multiracial kids, which would mm-hmm. be great. But, um, it's people from other countries that don't, and other don't give a shit parts of the United right. States who don't have these preconceived notions, mm-hmm. these de- self defeatist attitudes moving here and mm-hmm. doing things. Yeah. Now we've got a lot of people here, what really amazes me about Richmond is the creativity that goes on here mm-hmm. in the face, in the blowback of what we have to deal with, you know, as far as city government and just the structure. The, yeah, the, so people have longstanding structure in Richmond. Right. Uh, the, the old attitudes, the, the people that get things done in the face of that with, in the restaurant industry, in, in the arts, in mm-hmm. music. And all that, um, what they people get done here in the face of all that amazes me. And I really think that's probably the thing that makes the city as great as it is. Yeah. And I do think it's a great city now. And I used to really be one of those people that was like, Richmond sucks. I got to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I mean, I had nightmares when I lived in New York that I was back in Richmond. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I did come, I mean, mm-hmm. we definitely had some dark times here where for whatever reason we've been stagnant and we've mm-hmm. been stuck. But like, I, I mean, I independently have voiced the same theory you did that people are coming here mm-hmm. that don't know about all of this bullshit, don't care about it. They're just like, this is a perfectly good city in the middle of the Atlantic seaboard, like yeah. on 95. Like, w- why not? Like, why not? Why? It's a why perfect we'll, location. You know, it is. For good things and bad things, but, you know, it, it depends on what you want to make of it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it just, it amazes me the things that go on here, what, what's been created in Richmond, despite the structural issues we have here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the people still yeah. love it enough to work on it, even yeah. despite all of this frustration, you know, mm-hmm. and despite this, like, the ridiculous, like, uh, uh, you know, absurdist bureaucracy, like yeah. the, you know, the, the kind of fucking green acres. Like. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's amazing to me. It's it, it's great to see though. It, it's every time a new restaurant opens, I'm like, oh man, I can't wait to try it. Yeah. Every time there's like I hear about some event going on, it's always somebody's create always creating something that's and this like Richmond, this mural project that just happened is oh, really amazing. Yeah. Like, that's some world class shit. Yeah. Right there. I know, I know. Any people are gonna complain about that because <laughs> it's not the way. I mean, the old joke about Richmond is how many Richmonders does it take to screw in a, a light bulb? Right. One to screw in the light bulb and two to talk about how great the old one yeah. was. Yeah. Well that ended uh, rather abruptly. My roommate gets some recording these in the living room sometimes, came down and disturbed us, and uh, so, I don't know, I just cut it off then. Whatever, it's good to end with a good old, musty old, dusty old joke about Richmond. I do honestly love this town. I went out today, I, um, seeking support to keep doing this, um, I really, I think I'm on to something. I really, I'm, I'm starting to kind of figure out what the brackets are and like how I want to direct this celebration of Richmond people and culture and and sort of a continuum of it. You know, um, I was really pleasantly surprised with the support I got from one particular individual, um, and he said he didn't really want to big fuss about it but uh you know who you are man thanks and uh the rest of you i mean folks i got a fair amount of you seem to be coming back and listening to these if you could go to that donate page and give me 10 bucks 20 bucks that would really be awesome i mean just donate to support this continuing sort of story of richmond people as it meanders and and something starts to emerge. I think it's um, it's a great project. I'm enjoying it, and I'd love to just totally focus on it. And you're helping me to promote lots of other people as the signal that this grows, and, um, and we build an audience, and I you know build the web presence, and build Facebook presence, and Twitter, and all of that. I'm really not promoting myself. I'm promoting all of these personalities that I'm bringing to the page. You know, and you're the personalities. You know, we're all. Let's get out. I mean, I, I, I love this connection thing. You can listen to this when you're at work. You can listen to it when you're driving your car. When you're done listening to it, come out of your house and go to see some shows. Go to the Camel. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that. I went to the Camel last night and saw um, My Darling Fury. Great. Really interesting band. And uh, Glass Twin, Ricky Tubbs' new band. I like them, too. And Floodwall. 
Um, I, this is no substitute for actual social networking. Um, I want to see you out there, so come on out and, and say hi to me at these various events going on in the Richmond area. Namaste. Namaste.